be together under one roof to worship God. When not only do we come together, we, we sing out loud, sometimes on key. And not only that, we sit and we listen to some guy ramble on and on and on. Who wants to spend a weekend day doing that? No fireworks, no laser light show. You know, in an age of sound bites and computer-generated images, you would think that coming together just to sit and listen would be rather boring. Not only that, in the shadow of the cross, we partake in something that we call a supper, although you can hardly call it a meal, right? Because it's merely a, a smidgen of, of cracker and barely a sip of grape juice. And we give our money away. What kind of people do that? People that have lost their mind, right? I mean, you think about how odd what we do must look to people in the outside. Are we crazy? Maybe. Depends on how you look at this phenomenon that we call worship. I want to ask you, when was the last time you worshiped? And some of you say, well, just last week, last Wednesday. Let me ask it again. When was the last time you worshiped? Because I have worked with churches where one guy ran the sound every time we had a service. That deacon or that gentleman would come in every Sunday morning during class and, and during worship, every Sunday evening during worship, every Wednesday night during class and during the devotional time, he did the sound. And I, I thought to myself, when was the last time that guy worshipped? I know of, of folks that that teach a Bible class and they spend all week preparing and they come in and, and, and they, they teach that Bible class and, and they do other things and service in a particular area of the service. And I think to myself, when was the last time they worshiped? Even myself, I sit in the pew and I wrestle with my thoughts and I think about what I'm going to say, putting the finishing touches on the sermon before I get up and I have to remind myself, I am a worshiper first. And I can't allow my role in the worship to crowd out what I'm supposed to be doing at that time. When was the last time you truly worshipped? I think there are a lot of Christians who see a responsibility to be here every Sunday. They are sincere about wanting to come and to sing and to listen to a sermon, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to be a true worshiper. But they, in all of their sincerity and all of their responsibility that they feel, they still haven't worshipped. Maybe that describes you. Here's the deal. As I thought about how we could approach this word for worship, I thought about all the ways and all the angles that we could take, all the different approaches that we could, that we could come at this word. Obviously, I've preached on worship several times, and one thing that this one word study has done is it's challenged me to take a different approach to some of these words or these subjects that I've preached on a number of times. And of course, I could do like a lot of preachers, and we could look at the Greek words, proskuneo and latrueo, and we could look at those and examine what those mean and how they apply to our worship. We could look at the five acts of worship and dissect each one of those. We could go back to the Old Testament, and we could talk about Nadab and Abihu and talk about worship gone wrong. We could do all of those things, but I think where we need to land this morning, I think where a lot of folks in the religious world need to land is asking the question, what is worship? Because I think, by and large, we don't know what it is. We do it, at least we think we do, and we come to it. 
but I don't think that we necessarily know what it is or what it's about. Now, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I'm not talking about necessarily everyone in this room, but I think if you look across the religious landscape, what you see, by and large, are people that have lost the heart and the core of what worship truly is. When's the last time you worshiped? Well, that's going to be a hard question to answer if you don't even know what worship is, right? In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a woman at a well, and the issue of worship comes up. Notice what is written in verse 22 and following. Our Lord says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When I read this particular passage of Scripture and other passages of Scripture, what I glean from the Bible as far as worship is one thing above all else. The one thing that we need to be concerned with above all else when it comes to worship is this. Does it please God? That's it. God is the supreme ruler of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, and therefore whatever He has sanctioned to happen in worship must be done according to his will if we want to please him. That's the one thing that I gather from Scripture above all else is, does my worship please God? That's the one question that I need to seek to answer with my worship. Jesus here tells this woman that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. In truth means that we follow the rules, right? That we do it the way that he has prescribed. And I don't think it's the in truth part that we have a lot of problem with. I think we understand that. I think we understand the five acts of worship. I think we understand that we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, that we sing, that we listen to a message from God's Word, that we give of our means, all of those things. I think the in-truth part we understand. In fact, I think the in-truth part is emphasized over the in-spirit part too much sometimes. That we get so focused on the in-truth part that we forget about the in-spirit and we don't have the right heart sometimes. But the two go hand in hand. You can't worship in truth and forget about the in-spirit part and be right with God. Nor can you worship in the in-spirit way and forget about the in-truth and be right with God. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus takes issue with the Pharisees' worship. And he quotes from Isaiah. It's in Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 7. Jesus says this, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Through the years, many Christians have clung to the idea that if I'm worshiping by the rules, then I'm pleasing to God. As long as I'm worshiping right, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. But is that true worship? Is simply worshiping by the rules all that God asks of us. I've heard it defined like this when talking about vain worship. It's when we worship the way we want instead of the way that God has prescribed. That might be a good definition of, of uh, worship that is meaningless, and maybe we need to discuss at some point our worship or our idea of worship versus God's commands in worship. 
But as far as the context of vain worship that Jesus is approaching here in Matthew 15, that definition has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. Because you can worship by the rules, you can worship in truth, and still be worshiping in vain. In fact, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were worshiping in vain because they were not worshiping with their heart. You see, when we look at the context of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is pointing out that you can worship the way God has told you, perhaps, and still be worshiping in a way that is unsuccessful, because that's what vain means. It means a few things, but it means unsuccessful. It means empty or hollow or, or, or shallow. I bring this up because I think too many times God's people have come to worship they have done what they believe God is, has told them to do, and therefore they are right with God, they have pleased God, and, and all the while their heart is far from Him. I bring up an example I used last year. We talk about the church back in the 50s and the 60s, and we talk about how rapidly it grew and how those were the glory days of the church. And while the church in the 50s and 60s had some wonderful people and wonderful leaders that, that moved it ahead. And while there were some great things, I'm sure, that were done in the 50s and 60s within the church, let's be careful about holding it up as the standard because there was discrimination. There was segregation. There was racism. Not in all of them, but the church experienced things and promoted things, even taught from the pulpit how it was okay to segregate, how it was okay to have this type of mindset. That is vain worship. Because you cannot proclaim to love God and worship Him and ignore His commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. There is no way in the world that you can claim to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth and yet deny certain people access to your building to come and worship with other people because of the color of their skin. That doesn't work. That is vain worship. There have been people who thought that they were worshiping properly because they were doing it by the rules, and in fact their heart was far from God because they were ignoring other commandments. And we worship in vain when we take customs and traditions and place them above all else. We have certain customs and traditions in our culture, right? What time we meet on Sunday, when we meet on Sunday, how many times we meet on Sunday, or, or meeting on Wednesday night. You know, um, the order of our worship. Much of it is tradition or custom, where we place, you know, the Lord's Supper, how many songs we sing, all those kind of things. You realize that offering an invitation is strictly a custom or a tradition. A good one, but still a tradition. And traditions or customs are not bad, but they become bad and they become wrong when they take the place of what's first priority. They become vain. Our worship becomes vain. When those things get exalted above loving your neighbor, not being covetous, loving your enemy, not gossiping and all those things. We can't be more concerned about our traditions or customs than we are about what God actually commands. I think Christians in this day and age have this false idea that if you were to take our worship service and place it back in the first century, that it would match up perfectly. It wouldn't. 
That doesn't mean that we're doing anything wrong necessarily. But we are very much tradition-based in a lot of what we do, and we've got to recognize that. And as I said, those traditions aren't necessarily all bad. Our customs necessarily aren't necessarily bad. But when they take the place of what God actually commands, then they become wrong. When they take the place of things like loving your neighbor, like loving your enemies, not gossiping or slandering or those kind of things. There are some things that are more important than our traditions or our customs. Vain, as I said, means empty or hollow or unsuccessful. And Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees and their worship was not that they were singing off-key. It wasn't the fact that they were taking the Lord's Supper before the sermon or after the sermon. That's not what he was being critical of. It didn't matter what came out of their mouths. What mattered was the condition of their heart. And the same still holds true today. If we want to avoid hollow and empty worship, then we have to be focused on the right things. And right things means much more than our customs or our traditions. It even goes beyond just the in-truth part. It has to include in-spirit. It's not just about what God has authorized. It's about where my heart is. Above all else, it's the condition of my heart. You want to talk about success in worship? If vain worship is unsuccessful worship, you want to talk about success in worship, it doesn't come from the result of good singing or good preaching. Success comes from a heart that is beating for God, that is pumping praise through our veins. There was a television commercial not long ago. I saw about this, this gentleman from India. He had moved to the United States and spent some time in America. And, but he was still going to follow the custom of his country to engage in an, an arranged marriage. And he was uneasy about it because obviously he didn't know who this woman was that he was going to be attached to, this woman that his parents had set up for him to marry. And so the commercial shows him standing at the airport in the terminal holding a bouquet of flowers waiting for his soon-to-be bride to walk off the plane. And when he sees her, all of his doubts and his fears disappear. You know why? Because she was gorgeous. I mean, she was drop-dead beautiful. Now, all of a sudden, he didn't have any reservation about marrying this woman. What changed? Well, the fact that he had seen her, right? And I think that's what changes our mindset and our attitude and our heart when it comes to worship. When we truly see God, when we truly experience God. As I said, I don't think we have the first clue in the religious world about what worship is. Because every time we debate traditional versus contemporary worship, it just tells me you don't have a clue what you're talking about when it comes to worship. Every time we talk about my preference versus this preference, it just goes to show me we don't know the first thing about worship. We have totally and completely missed the point when it becomes self-focused and me-centered. When you experience God, you can't help but be changed. When you come into the presence of God and you recognize that self, and you make yourself vulnerable, when you experience God, you can't help but be changed. In Isaiah chapter 6, Starting in verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I want you to notice again that first line. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Uzziah was a good king, and there weren't many good kings. He reigned for 52 years, and for 52 years there was peace and prosperity. Now he has died. Can you imagine what the people must have been thinking? They must have been thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen now? We've had all of this peace and prosperity for 52 years. We had a good king. Now what's going to happen to us? And that's when God decides to give Isaiah a vision of heaven and shows him the throne room and shows him sitting on the throne. The message was clear. You're going to be okay. That's what God is telling Isaiah and to report to the people. God is on his throne. Doesn't matter who's on an earthly throne. I'm on my throne. And that's all that matters. You're going to be okay. Don't fear. It's going to be all right. But Isaiah catches a glimpse of God in all of his glory, and he can't help but be changed. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a prophet, which I assume means he was a pretty good guy. But he experiences God in a way that he never had before, and it changed him. His mentality was, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I cannot stand in your presence. I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. I deserve death. I deserve hell. You look throughout the Bible. You see people who have an encounter with God. What happens? Instinctively, they worship. They fall down at Jesus' feet. They fall down in the presence of God. They fall on their face, and they worship It's an instinctual thing. It's something that just happens naturally and flows from a heart that has been changed by being in the presence of God. You think about David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had an illicit relationship with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed. The baby that was born out of that illicit relationship, God says, I'm going to take from you. That baby's going to die. And David fasted. He did not sleep, and he prayed that God might change his mind. Who knows, maybe God will spare my son, but his son dies. And after his son dies, you know what David does immediately? He worships. What kind of person does that? What kind of person, after losing their child, can immediately worship You would think somebody in David's condition would go and find something to eat and take a nap because that would be the first two things you would do, you would think. In fact, the Bible does tell us that he eats, but not before he worships. What about Job? After losing everything, including his ten children, what does he do immediately? He worships. What kind of person can do that? What kind of person can worship after losing it all? If you go to Luke chapter 7, You can read, starting in verse 36, we won't read all of it this morning, but starting in verse 36, you see that Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. There's this big gathering of these religious elite people, and Jesus is invited. Probably not because they wanted to be his friend, but probably because 
They wanted to back him in a corner. Nevertheless, he is there, and there's this woman that disrupts the whole thing. She creates a scene by coming into the room, falling at Jesus' feet, weeping. She takes an expensive jar of, of, of perfume and pours it on his feet and begins wiping his feet with her hair. Can you imagine the scene that this would have caused? For a, a woman to have unbound hair in public was a huge disgrace. It was a great sign of immodesty. Plus the fact that she was a harlot, a prostitute. And she busts into this party and she causes this major ruckus by weeping at Jesus' feet. Wiping his feet with her hair. Pouring perfume all over. What kind of person does that? A person that is so enamored with Jesus that she couldn't help herself. Really, she was only doing what should have been done to Jesus in the first place because anytime a guest came into, the, uh, came into someone's home, three things were done. They were given a kiss. Their feet were washed in cool water to wash them but also to comfort them. And then they were anointed with incense. This woman was only doing what should have been done to her in the first place. Simon, the Pharisee, didn't offer any of these things. But this woman couldn't help herself. And you know why? Because she was so enamored with God. This is Jesus who came to save sinners like her. What motivated her actions? I think one word. Love. That's it. This woman had a heart for Jesus. She was blown away by Jesus and the love that he had for sinners like her. And she could not restrain herself. I picture this woman causing this major scene and thinking, I don't care what my reputation is. I don't care what anyone thinks. That's Jesus and I'm going to go to him. Because he's the only one who can save me. She did all that she could to show Jesus that she was nuts about him, that she was crazy about him. David worshipped after losing his infant son because he loved God so much. Job worshipped after losing it all because he loved God so much. That's what worship is. It's a demonstration of the heart, and it's motivated by love. Hopefully that's why you're here this morning. Hopefully you're here because you love God so much. And you want to pour out your love for him. Hopefully this is the highlight of your week. Hopefully everything in your life builds up to this day where you can come and worship. And that worship, you cannot contain yourself. You have so much joy and so much love for God that you can't contain it. You know, by and large, that's not really why we come to worship, is it? If we're honest. We come to worship out of a sense of obligation or duty. Mom, Dad, we going to church tomorrow? Yeah, I guess we need to. We come to church because we know it's what we need to do. We're a Christian. And so we come and we sit there and maybe we go through the motions. Maybe we play on our phone. Maybe, maybe we halfway listen. Perhaps we sing and, you know, we do so and we walk away and nothing is ever different in our lives because we've never experienced God. We haven't truly worshipped. Yes, we've come, we've sat down in a pew and we looked forward like we're supposed to. We've been somber. We've been, we've been quiet. 
but have we really worshipped? Like the lady who caused a scene in the house of a Pharisee, shouldn't worship flow from the heart of one who is crazy about God and cannot contain themselves? You know, a few months back, Wiley grad Case Keenum led the Minnesota Vikings to the NFC Championship game. They lost that game to the Philadelphia Eagles, who went on to win the Super Bowl. But it was the game before that that everyone was talking about, where Case Keenum led the Vikings to a miraculous comeback win over the New Orleans Saints. I rushed home to catch the game right after church. My wife and I sat down. We were watching as Minnesota had been ahead the whole game. And with just like two minutes to go, New Orleans kicks a field goal to put them ahead. And you kind of think, well, all hope is lost. Especially when you consider that just about 10 seconds to go with the ball on their own 39-yard line, third and 10, Case Keenum takes a shotgun snap, rolls to his left. He looks downfield where he sees Stephon Diggs, and he throws the ball up for grabs, and it looks like the Saints defender could have knocked the ball away at least, but instead goes for a tackle and misses Stephon Diggs completely. It was funny, if you watch that replay, Diggs catches the ball, and it's almost like he looks around and goes, where's everybody at? And he takes off to the end zone. He runs in untouched. Game over, Minnesota wins. They called it the Minnesota Miracle. And for three or four days, that's all anyone could talk about on sports radio and on ESPN and Fox Sports. I couldn't wait to tell Zane. He wasn't home at the time. He walks in the door and he said, how'd the game go? I said, well, watch this. And we watched the replay. If you've ever been involved in something exciting, you can't wait to tell somebody about it, right? I mean, in fact, part of the enjoyment, maybe even most of the enjoyment is the enjoyment you get from telling somebody else about it, right? I couldn't wait to tell Zane when he got home about the game. I, I texted Case's dad, who serves on the school board with me, and I just texted one word, unbelievable, and he, he texted back, yeah, right? I mean, who would have ever thought that something like that would happen, and it would happen with one of our own from Abilene, Texas, right? If you've ever been excited about something, you can't wait to tell others. If you've ever been to Disney World or to, you know, to uh, Hawaii or, or, or to Europe or somewhere like that, you can't wait to tell others about your experience. You come back with pictures on your phone and stories that you'll tell to anyone who will listen, right? Because that's half the enjoyment. It's telling people about the joy that you had. I wish that we could get as excited about worship. I wish Christians saw worship as a privilege rather than a duty. Anyone who has ever enjoyed something knows what I'm talking about, and I wish more and more Christians would leave worship talking about it. Can't wait to come back. Can't wait to tell others and invite them because they want them to experience what they are experiencing. Instead of saying, well, I've, I've done my duty for another week. Saying, I can't wait till it comes back around the highlight of my week. I wish more Christians saw worship as a demonstration of the heart rather than a self-focused event. I wish more Christians were so crazy about God that they could hardly contain themselves. It's kind of like the visitor that came to church one Sunday and she sat behind a young mother who had a small child who was about five years old and the, the visitor sat there and the little boy just squirmed and wiggled. He couldn't stay still. And every now and then he'd turn around, he'd look at the visitor, and he would smile and he'd wink. 
and the visitor loved it. She thought it was adorable. But every now and then, the mom would say, get over here and turn around. And she'd grab the boy sternly and sit him back down in the seat. But he couldn't resist. So he'd turn back around. And he would smile ear to ear, grinning and, and winking at the woman. Finally, the mother grabbed the boy, and you could hear her say, turn around and sit down. This is church. We don't smile. <laughs> and I'm afraid that's how too many people look at worship. Too many people come to worship with, without any joy. It's a joyless experience. They come in, they sit down, they look ahead. I believe God wants you to smile. I believe God wants you to enjoy worship. Go back to the Old Testament sometime and read about worship. Read about David and his worship of God. I think God wants us to experience him in our praise of him. How can we keep from being excited? If you can't get excited about God and all that he has done for you and the fact that this right here that we do on Sunday morning is just a snapshot of eternity, if you can't get excited about that, then I can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you. And so many of us walk away from worship and we say, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Because we come with an empty basket and we expect God to fill it, right? We expect other people to fill it. The song leader, the preacher, whoever. Instead of coming to worship with a full basket and saying, how can I dispense this stuff? Because I love God so much. I just want to praise Him. I am so excited to be here. I have a heart beating for God that is pumping praise through my veins. Unless and until we understand that worship is an action of the heart motivated by love, we will never truly worship. And so I ask you again, when was the last time you worshiped? When was the last time you were changed by worship? Do you have a need this morning that we can help you with? If you feel like that your relationship with God is lacking and you're ready to do something about that, maybe you have not begun a relationship with God and you want to learn more about that. Maybe you've been contemplating it. Maybe you've been studying with someone and you're ready to put on Christ and baptism this morning and begin a daily walk with God. Please take care of it this morning. Let us help you. We want to be a family that, that loves on you, that includes you, that helps you get to heaven. If we can help you in some way this morning, come now as we stand and as we sing.